0: Uh, you know, I felt, I felt kind of guilty a couple weeks ago. I, you may have heard the story that I kind of, I almost ruined Barbara's surprise birthday party, her 75th surprise birthday party, uh, because I was going to have her come in on Good Friday to play. And I found out after I invited her and we kind of committed for her to come in and uh, play on Friday, that it was her surprise birthday. So I had to call her and say, Barbara, we really don't want you to come in. It was really awkward to, to say that, now, the thing that helps is you know that when the surprise comes, that that memory of, mer- of her memory of me sort of saying, don't come, uh, is actually sort of reworked and reshaped to where it was maybe an unpleasant conversation becomes something to kind of chuckle about and laugh about. It got me thinking about uh, growing up and m- uh, my experience of a surprise birthday party. Uh, I was six turning seven years old, which is a great time to have a surprise birthday party because... Six years old, going on seven, you can't really catch on to things too well. Uh, But I remember having no clue. I remember my parents telling me, Zach, we're just not going to have a birthday party for you this year. (laughs) We're just going to have kind of a family party. And uh, that's a pretty sad thing to hear as a six-year-old. I I remember my brother and sister had great birthday parties. All my friends had great birthday parties. I mean, birthday when you're turning six years old. I mean, that is a huge deal. I thought about all the presents I was missing out on. All the, all, the, uh, all the fun of a birthday party, birthday cake, you know, ice cream. But I tried to take it as best as I could as a six-year-old. I tried to keep my chin up. I'm going to be seven. You've got to deal with things like this when you, when you get older. I try not to be jealous. Um, but it was hard, and I got kind of mopey. I got kind of sad as, as my birthday neared. I, I, uh, I was convinced there would be no birthday for me. I was, I was sure of it. I was actually so sure of it that I was actually kind of blind to the clues that were around me. Uh, For one, uh, like a week earlier, I received a strange call from my friend, Billy Loratelli. Uh, That's really his name. Billy Loratelli, great name. Billy called me out of the blue and says, Hey, Zach, I'm not going to be able to make it to your birthday party. And I said, Billy, what are you talking about? I'm not having a birthday party. No, my mom told me you're having a birthday party. And I said, I can't make it. Billy, I'm not having a birthday party. I have no idea what you're talking about. Hung up. I was like, man, I had no idea. And then the day of my, my actual birthday, my, my parents sent me to kind of play with uh, my cousin and my uncle, and we went out to play just for like a little bit, and I, I kind of thought we were going to kind of hang out the entire day, and they said sort of abruptly, oh, we need to go back home. I'm like, man, this is really an awful birthday. I don't even get to play with my cousin here. But I get home. And I open the door, and 20 of, you know, my best friends jump up and say, Surprise! I was just overwhelmed. I somehow remember I was wearing bright yellow sweatpants. I don't know why I remember that. But I was just so happy. I remember my heart warmed. I overflowed with joy. All my friends there with big smiles. It was a great birthday. My parents somehow found this like reptile lady who came in with bunches of snakes and lizards and all this stuff and brought it in. We looked at them On It was the best birthday ever. We had cake and ice cream, presents. Now, what happened after having experienced the joy of a surprise party is it totally reshaped and reworked my memory of the preceding few weeks. What I had experienced as gloom as sadness, now I look back on that memory and I could only see it as a prelude to joy. That's the great thing about surprises, good surprises. It's good because it shows you that the reality that you had perceived, that dire reality, that's not reality. Reality is actually delightfully different from that. As we'll see this morning in the scripture, God's plan in Jesus, in Jesus' resurrection, is like a surprise party for the world. Reality really is delightfully different from what it would seem. And here's the surprise. Death cannot hold Jesus. Death is not the final word. Jesus is indeed risen and is indeed Lord in Christ of the world. The God of Israel, the God of the whole world reigns in Jesus Christ. He has redeemed not just Israel, but the whole world. He's broken the bonds of sin and death. What seemed like defeat was just another piece of the victory and was part of the plan all along when the cross is viewed through the lens of resurrection. So we'll talk this morning about how the resurrection can kind of reorient us, reshape our way of perceiving not just our past, but all of reality, past, present, and future. But let's dig into that story. I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 24. will be reading verses 13 through 35. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, that can be found on page 1046. I'm sorry, 1047. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talk and discuss these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, "'asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem "'and do not know the things that have happened "'there in these days? "'What things?' he asked. "'About Jesus of Nazareth?' "'They replied, he was a prophet, "'powerful in word and deed before God "'and all the people. "'The the chief priest and our rulers "'handed him over to be sentenced to death, "'and they crucified him. "'But we had hoped that he was the one "'who was going to redeem Israel. "'And what is more, it is the third day "'since all this took place.' In addition, some of our women have amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, But but him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we've broken bread this morning. We've had the chance to enjoy the meal you've given us. Pray, Lord, that you would Open the scriptures to us this morning, that we would have hope because of who you are, our risen Lord. So I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So it's an interesting scene. We have two sort of lesser known disciples, not of the eleven. We know one was named Cleopas. The other is unnamed. A lot of commentators think it could have been Cleopas's wife. Anyway, uh, two disciples headed to Emmaus, a small village about seven miles northwest of Jerusalem. It was a good time for a good long walk for them. They needed one. They were grieving, they were raw, they were trying to figure it out. This Jesus they had decided to follow. Had his life brutally stamped out. Their hopes were stamped out alongside Jesus' death. All they know now is that they need to get away, get away from Jerusalem, get away from it all, from the violence, the despair, the destruction there. I wonder sometimes if we forget how raw, how real the grief was for the disciples. Their friend, their teacher, the rabbi, in the prime of his life, publicly mocked, publicly tortured, publicly killed, handed over by their own religious leaders to the brutal occupiers of their land. And this is just the third day after this all happened. It's kind of that that point, that third day, where the shocks worn off and that deep Deep grief is starting to set in. Jesus is dead. So they're walking, they're talking, they're trying to work it out. Good seven miles. Probably a couple hour walk. Then all of a sudden this guy comes up and starts walking alongside them. I wonder if they're a little bit annoyed at this point. We're working out some stuff. We don't need some sidler to come, you know, join our conversation. Do you know any sidlers, those people that just automatically turn up? And you're like, how'd you get there? We're having a conversation. I've been known to sidle a little bit during church coffee hour. I just kind of appear in the conversation. So Jesus kind of sidles up to these disciples. He's like, what are you guys talking about? And the scripture says, they stood still with downcast looks. Are, Are you kidding me? Are you the only ones visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened? It's kind of like, come on, man. It's one of those moments. They said, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet, powerful in word and deed. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. And this is the key verse, 21. But we had hoped he was the one who's going to redeem Israel. Their hopes were in Jesus. Their hopes were were in a sort of political redemption, it seems, for Israel. That Israel would be liberated, freed from brutal Roman occupiers, from brutal Roman oppression, a sort of return to the reign of King David, a time of jubilee, of peace, of prosperity for Israel as a nation-state. Other nations would come and pay homage to her, to Israel, and acknowledge that, indeed, God... That indeed Yahweh is in her midst. That, I believe, was their hope. Their hope most certainly wasn't a Messiah being crucified, mocked with the crown of thorns, and a sign that said King of the Jews. I don't think that's what they had hoped for. Notice how their hope is past tense. We had hoped. It's gone. It's abandoned. It's it's dead along with Jesus in their minds. There's not going to be a party. And they're going home. They're trying to move on. I wonder what hopes are past tense for you. What had you hoped? Just a quick aside. I wonder how Jesus has saddled up to you in those past tense hopes. Maybe his presence is disguised. Maybe it's even unwelcome. But I wonder if Jesus is with you and you're unaware. But it's interesting, as the disciples keep explaining, they explain the reports of something strange happening that day uh, at the tomb of Jesus, as they report the women seeing visions of angels, of the report that Jesus had risen from the dead. Um, but still, they, they really have no sense that this actually could have happened. There's no indication they think, they think there's any reason for hope. They just don't seem to have the category for it They're they're leaving town. They're downcast. They're, their hopes are gone. Now they got to deal with this discourteous side there. But then this guy, this who we know is the risen Jesus, starts to open up the scriptures to them. Have you noticed in these resurrection stories, by the way, how playful the risen Jesus is? He has a sort of whimsy to him. Maybe play, maybe sort of uh, Jesus' kind of acting in disguise almost at first, helps reorient us, reorient the disciples better than coming directly right out and kind of declaring himself. Um, anyway, he's, he's got to be this risen Lord, our risen Lord. He's got to be smiling underneath as he walks with his friends, uh, as he walks and opens up the scriptures to them. And he walks and explains, apparently Jesus provides a sort of recapitulation of all scripture, a big recap. Starting from Moses through all the prophets, explaining what the Scriptures said about the Messiah. Including what it said about why the Messiah had to suffer. And I'm thinking, it's a good thing this is a long walk, because that's a lot to explain through all the scriptures. And, and don't you wish you could have been there to hear Jesus open up the scriptures and explain How it was that you know, from from the beginning, from Moses through the prophets, that these scriptures foretold what had happened. Truly, christological reading of the Old Testament. I want to point out that I'm sure it wasn't just a verse pulled from here and there, but a grand sweeping narrative of how the Old Testament pointed to Jesus, from creation to Exodus, to the pre-exilic prophets to the post-exile prophets. And we don't know exactly what he said, and we, again, wish we did. But I gather that Jesus, through his, his summary, his retelling of the scriptures, is reorienting them to the, the sort of kingdom the Messiah has inaugurated and how the death and suffering of the Christ has always been part and parcel of the plan. In short, if the disciples were expecting uh, that the long history of Israel's exile and captivity would end, and remember Israel's history of exile and captivity, Egyptians, Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, Romans, they were a people constantly in bondage to foreign powers. If that was what uh, the disciples were expecting, that 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 exile would end, Jesus wanted to point them to the scriptures to see that indeed the exile has ended, the captivity has ended, but not in the narrow political sense that they were expecting. Explain this a little bit more. Uh, I'm going to quote from N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar who reflects on this passage. He writes this The story was never about Israel beating up her enemies and becoming established as the high and mighty master of the world. It was always the story of how the creator God, Israel's covenant God, would bring his saving purposes for the world to birth through the suffering and vindication of Israel. Israel's true king, Jesus, is the servant for the servant people. He was the one who had done for Israel and the world what Israel and the world could not do for themselves. Jesus the Messiah fulfilled the story told by Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That is the story of how the creator God would save the world through his people, Israel. It's actually a lot to take in. But Jesus is retelling the story. Showing how this was His death was always part of the plan. How his resurrection was always part of the plan. The redemption that Christ has wrought on the cross through his faithfulness to God has consequences that far exceed freedom from Rome or any other foreign power. Instead of the notion of a nation state being redeemed, Jesus spoke of another kingdom. The kingdom of God where the crucified and risen king reigns. And this, king, this kingdom is a place of reconciliation between, uh, between us and God. A place of reconciliation between us and the other. It's a place of freedom from slavery to sin and to death. Those are the real enemies, sin and death. It's a place of forgiveness of sins, not just for Israel, but the entire world. Through Christ. We can know intimately our Creator God who gives Himself in love for us. It's quite a bigger hope than the ones Cleopas and the other disciple were expecting. Being a citizen of this kingdom now means participating in God's borderless kingdom of love and forgiveness here and now, so that we who are in Christ could actually fulfill the scriptures and be a light to the nations. Through the Christ, Yahweh himself has delivered us from exile. In the proof, in the vindication of this, is the resurrection. Surprise. That's what I think Jesus was getting at. Retelling the story in a way that they would know that this was always the plan all along. And this had to be shocking news to the disciples as they heard this, these two disciples on the road. First of all, that this unexpected guy that saddled it up to them uh, is opening the scriptures in this way and providing them insight and hope. Uh, it had to be shocking. How the pieces start to fit together. How those puzzle pieces, they were trying to join just had never worked, and all of a sudden, they're, they're starting to come together and fit, and a picture starting to form. It makes me think about high school math for a little bit. I'm not good at math. I was an English lit major, and that kind of explains enough there. did not like math. My dad is like a math genius. And it was a recurrent event uh, in high school that I would have math problems, and just it would just not be clear, clear to me at all how to go about this. I'd be working on a problem, for, you know, ten minutes, and I'm just, "Dad, come help, right?" So I called Dad to come help, and then I don't know how, but in the simplest way, he would show me how to do the problem, and I would always say, "Oh, of course! How did I not see that? It all looked like Greek to me, and now it's so plain." Every single time it'd be like that. My dad just was good at math. I'm just not good at math. Another way to say that. But I think it's kind of like that for the disciples. Jesus is showing this is how it works. And it's kind of a, oh, of course, you're right. I see it's fitting together now. The puzzle pieces are matching. How did we not see that before? So they're excited. They're they're full of hope. And as they uh, approach the village of Emmaus, they urge him to stay longer. They liked what they're hearing. Their companion, again, the playful risen Christ, says, oh, I'm going to keep going, kind of playfully. He acts like he's going further, but he, but he sort of succumbs to their request, and he stays with them. And we learn that they eat together. And when they're seated around the table, that's when the revelation comes. Jesus gives thanks. He breaks bread and begins to give it to them. And the scripture reads, their eyes Their eyes were opened. Why are their eyes opened in the breaking of the bread? Well, I think it's like Jesus' recap of the scriptures in some way. It clearly points to the Last Supper that they had just celebrated a few days before. Uh, and it points to the fact that Jesus Christ gave himself a Passover lamb for the sins of the world. That in Christ there's a new exodus from slavery to sin, a new covenant in his blood. The risen Christ, in effect, says, See, I've given myself to you. I've given myself to Israel. I've given myself to the world. And it has not been in vain. This was not a mistake. This was the plan. I've conquered the grave, and you can have hope in life in my name. I give myself to you again. If their conversation on the road started kindling hope, now it's a bonfire. Their eyes are open The Lord is risen. He is indeed Christ and Lord. And then he's gone. I guess he had to go sidle up alongside some other folks. Surprise them. The party needs to get out. The word needs to get out. I try to imagine the looks on their faces after this had happened. How could you take this in? They explain our hearts were burning with hope. I know the experience of A heart burning. I experienced it when I was six turning seven. Their hearts were burning. And even though it's nighttime and it's really dangerous to travel at night uh, in that day and age, they go back the seven miles to Jerusalem. They're so pumped up. And even though it's late, the other folks are up too because they're so pumped up because they had seen seen the risen Christ as well. It'd be a tough night to go to sleep. The party's just beginning. It's time to celebrate. Now, here's the key. They've been recalibrated. They've been reset. Their hopes have been reshaped. Their vision of hope, of Messiah, of life here and now has changed because of the resurrection. It's not that the risen Christ validated what they had hoped all along would be the case. Instead, the risen Christ revealed that their hopes were too small, too human, too limited. Jesus wanted them to know hope that's bigger than what they had previously hoped. Hope not just for Israel, not just for politics, but a hope rooted in resurrection. And again, I don't think there's a better word than surprise to capture this. As we consider what this narrative means for us, I'm struck by this. This is all initiated by Jesus. He approaches them, he opens the scripture for them. He breaks bread for them. He gives it to them. He walks with them and untangles, untangles their web of despair. He rebuilds them from the ground up. He gives them the clear vision of what hope really is. It's a hope that makes their heart burn and burst with joy. Have you had your heart strangely warmed by the gospel? and you realize that the gospel of Jesus is really good. It's really good for everybody, but it's really good for you. That Jesus gives bread for the world, but he gives bread to you. By name, he gives you bread. All you can do is receive it. You can't earn it. You can't think your way into it. You can only receive the grace of Jesus. I had a friend who was telling me a story about growing up, and uh, he always wanted a, a pet bird growing up. And he told me of this kind of crazy incident, surprising incident, where he was out on his uh, balcony one day when he was a kid. And seemingly out of nowhere, this beautiful bird shows up on a bird branch, or on a tree branch. And it's just kind of sitting there looking at him. And he notices, wow, that's, that's a beautiful bird, is it? That a parakeet? It was a parakeet. And He's just amazed. How is there a parakeet just out in the middle of you know the neighborhood? This this isn't right. And uh, his heart kind of warms up a little bit, and and instinctually he he puts out his his hand like this, his finger like this, and immediately the bird flies over and perches right on his finger, and he he couldn't believe it. The bird chose him. It came to him, and he took the bird inside and created a home for it. He put up posters in case it was somebody's bird that had escaped, and nobody claimed the bird. That's like the grace of God in Jesus Christ. He comes before you. Jesus offers Himself to you. All you can do is put your hand out. He'll come right to you, right to where you're at. It requires that you put out your finger and trust. Do you dare to believe that the truest reality that there is, even though there's sin and death everywhere, but the truest reality is found and revealed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Could it really be? Could it really be that good? Yes. Yes. Two possibilities of response this morning I'd like to quickly share could be you could be, a, you could be uh, in a place of hopelessness right hopelessness right now. I want to proclaim the that Jesus desires to give you hope again I wonder if he's there with you already and you're just unaware of it Maybe you think he's some annoying guy that's come alongside but maybe it's uh, maybe it's in that unexpected undesired circumstance that Jesus wants to reveal himself in. He longs to give you bread, to open up the scriptures to you, to give you hope. Maybe he wants to reframe your way of thinking about things, of conceiving of reality. I think more than anything, he desires to open your eyes like he did to the disciples to the reality of his, his presence. Or if you are in a place of hope, if your heart feels warm, you're in a place of rejoicing in the hope of the risen Lord. The lesson we learn is we've got to share that with others. I love how these disciples run off to go share this good news. Uh, Hope, real hope, is meant to be shared. It almost can't help itself but to be shared. We need to share this hope with others. We live in a world in dire need of hope. In dire need of the hope of Jesus. We're called to be lights to the nations. Lights in the midst of the darkness and despair that's out there. So how might you share the hope of Jesus that you found? And It's not, again, it's not just about my hope or your hope. It's, it's the hope of the world that's in Christ. There's plenty of hope to go around. I'd monitor you to share it. I'd myself to share that hope. Hear now the good news, as Paul tells it God was reconciling, reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed us to the message of reconciliation. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that all our eyes would be open to the reality of your presence with us. Would you kindle hope in us where we need it? Would you give us the courage and the joy to share the hope we've experienced with the world? For your glory, for you, Lord, for you, Messiah, for you, the Christ. Amen.